0: And today we're continuing our series as we study the life of David and as we've been looking at some of the things that that God did in his life and certainly taught us through his life. And the portion of Scripture that we're looking at this morning is from 2 Samuel chapter 15. So if you turn there with me, 2 Samuel chapter 15, we're going to be talking about the fact that our God delivers us from trials and rebellion. Our God delivers from trials and rebellion. So turn there with me if you would. 2 Samuel chapter 15, this is what it says. I'm going to start off by reading the first six verses, and then we'll pick up from there in just a few minutes. But it says, in verse 1 of 2 Samuel 15, it says, After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. And then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land, then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at this portion of your word and as we think about the fact that that you are a good God and you deliver your children from trials. You deliver us from rebellion. You give us demonstrations of that in your word and you convince us of, of these things in our hearts right now. We're grateful, Lord, for the privilege to be able to look at this portion of scripture and to see the work that, that you did and accomplished in, in the context that is referenced here, even though things look bleak. Lord, we're grateful for The lessons we learn here, we're grateful for the reminders that you give to us elsewhere in your scriptures that help convince us that you're present with us in the midst of our lowest moments. And we, we pray that as we look at this portion of scripture together, that you'd speak to our minds and our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you'd help us to understand what we're reading and what we're contemplating here. And we pray that we'd grow in our walk with you as a result of it. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for all of these things in Jesus' name, amen you ever gone through a season of rebellion? Ever go through a season like that? Uh, Rebellion is, you know, this is no surprise to say this, but it's a common trait that's exhibited by the human heart. And from our earliest days, we have a bad habit of practicing it because children, what do they do? They rebel against parents. And citizens, what do they do? Well, citizens rebel against governments, and man rebels against God, and rebellion becomes just a, a part of our cultural makeup, and what we're like, and what we value. It isn't pretty, and it's not uncommon. And I remember a season of my own adolescence where I would say that if I had to characterize my personality with any one word, rebellion is the word that I would use to characterize that particular season of my life. I remember going through that season. I I remember, you know, like I'm so glad, again, that a ton of pictures don't exist from that period of time because I looked the part. My mind was constantly being filled with the the anthems of uh, rebellion through the music that I listened to and I listened to it constantly. It was on repeat. The walls of my bedroom were like a shrine to my favorite instigators of rebellion. And, you know, I just remember at that season of my life, whatever my parents approved of, I disapproved of, right? Some of you are experiencing that from the parental side of things right now, and you're like, yep. Um, And I have to tell you, that season of rebellion in my own life, that lasted years. Like, that wasn't just a a brief little snippet of my adolescence. That wasn't just like a brief moment of my childhood. It was something that continued for years until the day came when the Lord opened my eyes to the truth, and He changed my mind. It wasn't something that was, it wasn't a quick phase for me. It was something that lingered for a while. Now, here's something we know about God Himself. God is not unfamiliar with rebellion. He's seen it, He's even experienced it up close in a variety of ways. You know, when we look at Scripture, it reveals to us that even before he created man and we rebelled against him in the garden, even before our rebellion, there was an angelic rebellion that took place in heaven. Scripture reveals to us that Satan grew proud, Satan grew enamored with his own beauty. And he elevated himself in, in his own eyes above God. And so God cast him out of his presence. And I'll, I'll show you, I don't know how well you could read this here, but I'll read it for us. This is from Ezekiel chapter 28, starting with verse 14. And it speaks of what took place in, in Satan's rebellion and God's response to it. But you have here, in, in the voice of God, the Lord saying, You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the way, see this line here in Ezekiel twenty-eight verse seventeen, where it says, "Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor." Do you ever wonder to yourself, why would Satan rebel? Seeing God in his perfection, living in a context that was perfect, why would he do that? Do you ever wonder that? I remember at one point I was having a conversation with my wife's uncle, and he said, I've got a question for you that I've always wondered about. Why would Satan rebel? I mean, he was surrounded by so much beauty and perfection. Why would he even bother? Why would that even occur to him? And I think Ezekiel 28 verse 17 reveals it. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. The truth is... Pride blinds us from the truth. Truth could be right in front of your face, but if you adopt a position of pride, it will result in rebellion, and it will result in truth that's right in front of you, not even being perceived by you. I believe that that's what the Scripture is revealing to us about Satan and his rebellion. And as Satan rebelled against God, And as we collectively and individually have rebelled against God as well, we have to admit that, and I'm sure all of us probably have a story of at least a season of our life where we probably rebelled against the wisdom our parents were sharing with us, and hopefully we didn't have to learn too hard how unwise that was, all right, young people, all right, listen to your parents, do their hearts good. But here's the thing, and by the way, I didn't think of this when I was preparing for this week, but I just want to give anyone that is a present parent or a future parent permission to use this chapter that we're looking at today as ammo, if you ever need it. Because when you look at this portion of Scripture, what we're about to see is Absalom, the son of David, choosing to rebel against his father. And it doesn't go well. It doesn't go well. It's like that Mellencamp song, when I fight authority, authority always wins. You know that great theologian, John Mellencamp? Does anyone know him? You don't know him? All right, look him up. Augustine Spurgeon Mellencamp. Um, But anyway, let's think about being a king for a quick second. Assuming the role of a king, so if you're in a position where you're in charge of a nation, you assume the role of a king, that's a very dangerous thing. Certainly seems like a role that would be great, but it's not really a role that's for the faint of heart because when you serve in that role, there are people who will attempt to manipulate you in order to get whatever they want, and there are others who will conspire against you and attempt to usurp your authority and maybe even attempt to take your life. It's a very common thing, and sometimes those aggressors will come from the ranks of your own family. And this was something that David knew all too well. When we look at 2 Samuel chapter 15, we're actually given a vivid picture of the ways in which his son Absalom attempted to to wrestle authority straight out of David's hand. When David himself, if you remember, as we were looking just a a few weeks ago, when we saw him rebel against the Lord, and uh, David at that time sinned with Bathsheba and had Uriah, her husband, executed... He was warned that there were going to be consequences for his rebellion. And by the way, there are always consequences for our rebellion. I think sometimes we think that we escape those consequences, but that's, that's not true. There, there are earthly consequences for human rebellion. It does have a negative output somewhere. And David went through his own season of rebellion, and he was warned that there were going to be consequences for it. And Absalom's attempt to steal the throne of David was one of those consequences. He was even warned about this sort of thing ahead of time. And it's interesting to read the crafty ways that Absalom went about orchestrating his attempted overthrow of David's leadership. You have a context here where the people of Israel would attempt to go to David for judgment in a particular matter. And Absalom, realizing that this was the pattern of the people, as they would trust the king's wisdom and trust his discernment, and they would come to him, Absalom thought, you know, wouldn't it be kind of interesting if I just met people along the way, knowing where they're going to go? And maybe I stop and I start planting certain things in their mind. And so Absalom would meet them at the gate. And then as he was talking to them, the scripture reveals to us that he would just flatter them, he would make them feel like they were the most important person on earth. And he would just say, Oh my goodness, you're so wonderful. Where'd you come from? You know, he'd hug them, pay homage to them. I think people thought it was a big deal because they're like, This guy's the king's son. He pays a lot of attention to us. This this guy's this guy's great. I never get this kind of attention from. You know, I mean, Absalom would have been a celebrity in Israel at the time. And the fact that he would make such a big deal over everybody, they thought, you know, this is this is great. But he would also, he would also deceive them and say, you know. I, I'm just so sorry that you, 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 know, you, you made this, this trip. You've come this distance. The, really, the king really doesn't have somebody that can attend to your request. He's so busy. Nobody else is able to help you. I'm, I'm really sorry. You know, Hey, if I was in charge, maybe someday I will be. I don't know. If I was in charge, obviously I would love to hear your request, do something for you. But in the meantime, what can we do, right? You know? And he would kind of put this thought in people's mind, and they'd be like, man, that Absalom is such a nice guy, really nice guy. You know, it's a shame that I wasn't able to get my, my needs met or a judgment made on this particular decision, but boy, you know, if Absalom was in charge, I would have been heard. That guy hears me. That guy sees me. Really great guy, and word starts to spread, and people start buying into this act of deception. And in time, the Scripture tells us that, that over time, Absalom actually won the, the hearts of the people of Israel over, and many of the people became quite loyal to him. And after about four years of this behavior, so he's doing this continually for a decent period of time, when he sensed that there was enough support among the people of Israel, when he sensed that enough people were united behind him, he decided, you know what, the time is now. And the scripture tells us he incited a rebellion against David, which forced David and those who were loyal to him to flee Jerusalem. The scripture tells us this. In 2 Samuel 15, starting with verse 13, it says, "'And a messenger came to David, saying, "'The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom.' "'Then David said to all his servants "'who were with him at Jerusalem, "'Arise and let us flee, "'or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. "'Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly "'and bring down ruin on us "'and strike the city with the edge of the sword.'" got to tell you, if there were ever painful words that had to be uttered by the mouth of David, those were certainly some of them. I mean, keep in mind, he's speaking about his own son. He's speaking about his kid, whom he obviously loved. And yet, this is what he discovers. He discovers his own son basically wants his throne and wants him dead. And so, the scripture here reveals to us that as David and his servants fled... A variety of things happen after the verses that we just read together. David experienced all kinds of things uh, along the way while he was fleeing. Uh, We have some people that that looked at this context and they said, you know what, this is an opportunity for me me to really step up my game. And they showed unshakable loyalty to David in the midst of that moment. They're like, look, we know you're fleeing, but we are loyal to you. We are with you. We're going to stand with you. We're going to do our best to to just kind of Be by your side in the midst of this. We're not going anywhere. We're staying with you. Then you have others attempting to deceive and manipulate David in the midst of this time of need because they hope to get some things from him. The Scripture gives us at least one example of that. We're also told, if you continue to read in 2 Samuel 15 and beyond, we're told of a man who threw rocks and dirt at David and cursed him as he fled. So imagine being David in the midst of this context and, you know, you're fleeing with a group of people, concerned that there's someone actively trying to take your life and there's this nuisance traveling along with you, close enough to hit you with rocks, yelling out curses at you, throwing dirt on you, just going alongside of you as you're, as you're walking and as you're traveling and just spitting that venom in your direction. This was David's experience in the midst of this. By far, this was one of the saddest moments in David's life. Very, very sad moment. I think he understood, by the way, that the calamity that he was experiencing in this moment was directly connected to his rebellion just some years earlier. But the Scripture goes on to tell us that as David was fleeing, as he was walking, he did so as a man who was mourning. We're told that he walked barefoot. We're told that he covered his head. And we're also told that he openly wept as he went. Now, I don't know about you, but I I will admit that at times I try and hide my emotions. Anyone else guilty of doing that? Raise your hand high if you hide your emotions. <laughs> Some of you are willing to do it. You're getting better, you're improving. As I age, as I age, Brian spoke of my gray hairs. Thanks, Brian, really appreciate that. Um, the, uh, a- as I age, I have to admit that I'm, I'm getting much more comfortable with showing my emotions. I'm just mad all the time and I don't care who knows it, right? <laughs> um, No, the truth is, like, especially, like, you ever see a sad movie, and as the guy, right, if you're there with your wife or your girlfriend, you feel like, well, obviously, I can't allow moisture to fall from my face in this moment. I need to demonstrate the fact that I am a solid rock. I have gotten to the point where, at this point now, I'm just hoping that my wife can't hear me weeping sometimes. We watched a movie together recently, and I found myself doing one of these. And I was like, that was loud enough. She heard that. I know she heard it. And I was like, and then the movie ended abruptly before I had a chance to recover. And I was like, <clears throat> and then I looked over at her and I'm like, I was like, okay, she's, a... she's weeping too, but I'm really sorry that you had to see me like this. I'm going to need a minute. <laughs> and I, I look at David here and you would think that in this position of being king, that you wouldn't want others to see your emotions. But that was not the kind of guy David was. Like, when you look throughout Scripture, the things that he's described as doing or the way he carried himself, even the Psalms that he wrote, he was the type of guy that I actually get the impression that he was pretty emotionally healthy. I actually think it's very healthy for us to be uh, reasonably expressive of our emotions and not trying to stuff them in all the time, right? There is balance. We could go too far with stuffing and too far with expressing. Somewhere in the middle, I think, is where we want to be. And to be honest with you, when I look at David, that's kind of where I see the guy being. He wasn't afraid to express certain things that were impacting him emotionally. And truthfully, as you look at this, as it appears that the kingdom is being taken from him, not from some outside invader, but from his own son, that David is fearful that his own son might try to kill him and those associated with him, that's painful on multiple levels, is it not? Is that not an appropriate time to weep? that's an appropriate time to weep, and that's exactly what he was doing. It was a very sad sight to see, but again, what would we have done if we were him? If you were in his shoes, or in this case, barefoot walking along the way as he was grieving, what would you have done? Now, here's the thing. We all experience low moments. I've had my low moments. You've had your low moments. Some of them are brief. Some of them last a long time, and I have to say, as, as one who has gone through some stuff, and I know you've gone through some stuff as well, it's very natural to want those low moments to come to an end. When you're in the midst of it, it's very natural just to want it to be over with. Some of us may try to escape our trials while we're in the midst of it, and I certainly understand that. I, I think some of us take the posture of maybe if we ignore our trials, then they'll go away. It doesn't really work, but I certainly understand why people at least attempt it. But I actually think David's Expression here in his response is a very helpful thing to observe, especially if we're in the midst of something that's kind of weighing our hearts down a bit. In the midst of this great conflict, in the midst of this great sorrow, you have David purposing something in his heart that I find encouraging and instructive, and I hope you will as well. He decided, you know what? I can't control all this. And by the way, isn't that a helpful thing when you get to the spot of life where you realize, as much as I want to control all this, Most things are just kind of out of my control. So I just got to accept it. And so that's what David did. He accepts, look, I can't control all of this. What I'm going to do in the midst of it is I'm just going to trust the Lord to bring about whatever outcome he chooses to orchestrate. And however this goes, this goes. Don't you think, by the way, if in the midst of our low seasons, if our hearts and our minds could get to that same spot, that the low season might not feel quite as low we could just get to that spot where we say, you know what? I can't control this. There's no reason for me to fight it. It's, it's something that's happening. I think I just need to pray about it and acknowledge it. And in the end, probably the healthiest thing I can do is just trust the Lord for the outcome, whatever the outcome is, whether it's the outcome I would have chosen or whether it's the outcome he would have chosen. May his name be glorified. When you look at 2 Samuel 15 verses 24 down to verse 26, it's phrased this way. It says, And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. And by the way, That had to puzzle them. They're like, what do you mean? Like, we brought the Ark of God. Like, you're leaving the city. You're fleeing the city. Shouldn't we bring the the Ark of the Covenant here? And he says, no, I'll carry it back into the city. And then David says it this way, as he's just resigned to trust the Lord for whatever outcome comes to pass. He says, if I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold... Here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. Let him do to me what seems good to him. I have to say, that's something I think I need to pray more. Now, I know David was praying this in the midst of a, a, a pretty low moment, but I don't, think we also, I don't think we need to reserve that prayer just for low moments. I think it's just a matter of just entrusting our lives over to the one who has our best interests in mind and best interests at heart anyway. Again, this is a painful moment in David's life. It's hard to read about, especially if you've developed an affinity for David, even in the midst of his idiosyncrasies and and weaknesses. But this is very instructive. And basically you have David indicating that whether the situation resolved with his restoration or his destruction, he was content to entrust the outcome to the will of God and the hand of God. Whatever it is, it is. There's counsel for us in that. There's wisdom for us in that. For those of us who walk by faith in Jesus Christ, isn't this the best we can do? That really is the best we can do. You know, I know it's tempting to to fight. I know it's tempting to complain against God's will. But is there any point in doing that? We've all probably done it to one degree or another, whether it was overt or covert. You know, maybe we complained under our breath or just wondered... Like, Lord, why are you allowing this to happen? you ever just question God's will and just say, like, I don't get it. I didn't see this coming. This doesn't make sense. The plan that I had mapped out doesn't look like this. But in the end, who can truly thwart the will of God? Nobody can, right? In the end, doesn't it make the most sense to seek his favor while also admitting that if we receive it, it's really a matter of grace because favor is far from what our rebellious hearts actually deserve? I think at the end of the day, what we ought to do is say, wow, I'm amazed at the favor that I've received in any context of life, because I know I didn't deserve that. The chastisement or judgment or trials or difficulties I've endured, I actually, I actually deserve worse than that. But yet, in the midst of those things, the Lord seems highly interested in showing me favor and grace. What a wonderful thing. And in the midst of this turmoil, do you ever wonder, David, what were you thinking? Like, what were some of your deepest, innermost thoughts in the midst of all of this? Do you wonder stuff like that when you see from the outside some of the things that are taking place in here? Like, do you wonder what's going through his mind as he's weeping along the way? What he's thinking about in regard to his son? What he's thinking about, even about the people of Israel that he has loyally defended and protected and risked his life to serve many, many times? Do you think the disappointment was pretty heavy? you wonder what he was thinking? In the midst of this, David prayed. He lifted up his heart to the Lord in prayer. In fact, we're actually given a glimpse of his prayer in another part in Scripture. Psalm 3 was actually written, David composed it in the midst of this trial. It's a powerful psalm, and I'll just share a portion of it with us. But in Psalm 3, you can see what David had going on in his mind and in his heart. This is what he said. He said, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. This is what David purposed in the midst of this and in the days and weeks beyond this when he was able to reflect upon what he watched the Lord do. David, at the point where these things were taking place in 2 Samuel 15, David was surrounded by his enemies. He was being slandered. People thought his situation was utterly hopeless But David knew otherwise. He knew that he could trust the Lord to be a shield that protected him. He knew that the Lord would hear and answer his prayers. David even knew, and imagine this in the midst of all of this, David even knew that he could lay down and sleep without fear because the Lord would sustain him. If anything would keep you up at night, knowing that there was a whole nation of people and an army of people that had turned on you, and was trying to take your life, you would think that would keep someone up at night, but he knew in the midst of this that he could lay down and sleep because the Lord would sustain him. Now, I I think for each of us, you know, I'll admit to you that I don't look forward to trials. But in retrospect, I can't list a single one that I'm not grateful for having gone through because of the, the eventual outcome and how it benefited my life long term. And I think sometimes it's very, very helpful for us to be brought so low that we're in a place where we come to realize that our only option is to trust the Lord. That's literally the only option. We've run out of our human solutions. We've run out of our, our, you know, seemingly logical options. Really, the only logical option is to trust the Lord. You know, again, when you look back at what Satan did, Satan puffed himself up in pride. He set himself up as trying to attempt to usurp the authority of of God. He wanted to be worshiped as God. Then you have Absalom doing a very similar thing here to David. And lest we point the fingers at others, we do the same exact thing, and we've done the same exact thing toward our parents, toward God himself. And I think far too often, in the midst of our low moments, we mistakenly think that we could trust our own wisdoms, our own wisdom and our own abilities, I should say, instead of entrusting our lives over to the Lord who's fully in control. But I think the Lord makes great use of our most painful trials to teach us that our trust in ourselves is misplaced. If I'm trusting myself, that's a misplaced trust. The Lord is the one who deserves our faith. Look at what Scripture tells us. Multiple places it tells us this. You have this in Nahum chapter 1, verse 7. It says, "...the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble." He knows those who take refuge in Him. Not an encouraging verse. Not an encouraging thing to just think about and dwell on for a little bit. The Lord's a stronghold in the day of trouble, not just after it concludes, but in the midst of it. And He knows those who are taking refuge in Him. Again, sometimes the best thing we could do, and I think the thing the Lord's trying to teach us is that's the safest, wisest thing to do, to take refuge in Him. I love what Jesus tells us in John 14, 27. There he says this, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. What's Jesus saying? I'm right here with you in the midst of everything you're going through, I'm right here with you and I I give you my peace And the peace I give you is not like what this world attempts to offer. You have Jesus, the Son of God, coming to this earth to give us his peace in the midst of this ongoing culture of rebellion that we've been born into. This world cannot give us that kind of peace because the kind of peace that Christ supplies for us is a contentment in him regardless of our present circumstances. The peace of Christ is a rest for our souls that can only be experienced as we trust in him, and as we're absolutely confident that our lives and the outcome of our circumstances are being securely held in the palm of His hands. He's got it all under control. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, is worthy of our trust. Now, there's all kinds of categories of things that you and I will go through during the course of our lives. Sometimes things will be relational. Sometimes things will be financial, the trials that we go through. Sometimes it'll be medical. I actually recently read something that was shared by Dr. Michelle Bankston in the midst of a medical trial that she and her family were apparently going through for a season. And she said this, kind of summarizing a year of going through severe trials related to cancer. She says, it's that time again, blood work, port flushes, and CT scans, as a cancer patient and his caregiver tests are necessary to... Determine if the treatment is working, but there's almost this reflective breath holding that takes place during the wait for results. Then she says, Yet the wait also allows for a time of reflection. While I personally have rarely found it helpful to ask God why, I have come to experience great growth when instead I ask, Lord, what do you want me to learn from this? And then she says, It was quite the year, and although I wish. Uh, or though I wouldn't wish the, the events we faced that year on anyone. She says, I'm so grateful for the lessons I've learned through it. And then she listed seven things that the Lord directly taught her in the midst of the most difficult year of her life. Tell me if you resonate with any of these seven. She says, the first thing I learned in the midst of that year was this. God is faithful. And then she says, the second thing I learned was this. We are never alone. I think one of the things that Satan loves to convince us of in the midst of our low moments is that you're you're by yourself, you're on your own to figure this out, and no one's coming to help you. And she was reminded, we are never alone. The third thing on her list is this: When we are weak, he is strong. And I think sometimes it it takes a reminder of our weakness to help us recognize just how strong the Lord truly is. Number 4 on her list was this. She says, "Trials are a season, not a destination, we will get through them. Do you believe that? If you're in the midst of something low, do you believe that you will get through it? It's something that she felt the Lord was teaching her in the midst of this. Number five on our list was this. She said, trials help us grow in our faith. I could testify to that. Again, when I look back over the course of my life, it's, it's really the trials that I've gone through that have stretched my faith the most. It wasn't my seasons of comfort and ease It was the trials I went through that caused me to rely on the Lord more. Number six on her list is this. Waiting is active, not passive. I think that's an interesting statement to say that she learned that. Waiting is active, not passive. Meaning, in the midst of waiting for the Lord to answer, still be about the Lord's business. Go about your life. Do the things that God's called you to do. You don't need to shut everything down in the midst of your low moments. Don't just sit there. Actively do what the Lord calls you to do. Actively take the steps of faith He's calling you to take in the midst of the trial. And then number seven on our list was this. She said, we can rest in the assurance that God's plans for us are good. We can rest in the assurance that God's plans for us are good. Here's how this all ends for David. David was ultimately rescued from his trial in a way that I think certainly would have been unexpected for many. The Scripture tells us a few chapters after this that Absalom was riding a mule while he was in pursuit of of David and, and David's army, and he rode that mule under the thick branches of an oak tree, and his hair became entangled in those branches. So, he's riding on the mule, goes under some low branches, his hair gets entangled, in those branches, and the mule keeps going. And it all happens so fast that Absalom isn't able to untangle his hair from those branches. He's unable to free himself, and he ends up dangling there from the branches by his hair that he can't untangle. And then word is quickly given to Joab, who is the commander of David's army. And Joab goes and he checks it out and he's there with a group of his men and he takes javelins and he throws them into Absalom. And then the men that are with Joab kind of finished the task and they struck Absalom down and they take his life. And soon after, David was restored to the throne in Israel. Now, scripture tells us that he grieved quite heavily that this was the ultimate outcome for his son, which is very interesting. You would think that if someone's trying to take your life, that that would be a hard thing to wrestle with and a hard thing to forgive. But guess what? Hasn't this been the pattern and practice of David's life up to this point? During the time when Saul was trying to take his life, what did David do? Pray for him and try and support him and honor him. Now you have Absalom trying to do the same thing, and what does David find in his heart to do? To forgive him to not hold it against him. I have to tell you what, it's very easy for me to notice the rebellion of other people against the Lord and to ignore my own, but I have to tell you, I'm so grateful that our Lord Jesus Christ does not hold my rebellion against him, against me. The fact that he was willing to take it upon himself, the fact that he was willing to look at me and say, yes, you have lived as my enemy. Yes, you've lived as a rebel. Yes, you've lived with your own intentions and attitudes being the things that dominated your thinking. Yes, you even idolized other rebels and tried to be just like them. And yet, I offer myself to you. And yet, I seek to forgive you of your sin. not that a beautiful thing that our Lord would look at us and He would say, you know what? I'm not going to hold it against you. I'm so grateful for that. And here's the thing even related to our trials, I don't know what kind of trials you may be called to endure. Some of them are going to be pretty heavy, and maybe some of them you're going through right now. But here's what I know. In the midst of all of it, you can entrust the care of your life to the Lord. You really can. I think scriptures over and over. It just includes so many stories and examples showing us beginning to end what a trial looks like when it got underway, how it continued, and how the Lord brought it to completion and then the good that came from it. And here's something else for us to remember Jesus Himself has secured salvation for all who trust in Him. And just as He is fully capable to deliver us from eternal separation from Him, so too is He able to deliver us from our momentary trials, as Scripture describes them. These momentary trials that we experience during our time in this fallen world. And in Jesus, we find rest. We can rest in the assurance that he will never abandon his own, even when we're going through some of our lowest and most painful seasons. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word, and thank you for these reminders that we're able to see as we look at some of the things that took place in David's life. Lord, we recognize that David had his own seasons of rebellion, and then we see what took place in Absalom's life, and how that that rebellion from Absalom certainly had a quite the the grievous impact on David and many others. And Lord, we're grateful that you look at us, we who also could be counted among the rebels, and you choose to offer us your cleansing the gift of salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ, complete pardon for our sins. You even reveal to us in your word that you grieve over our rebellion. So, Father, we pray that by your grace we wouldn't grieve your heart. We pray that we would demonstrate the great joy and the great peace and the the fact that our hearts are at rest that you've accomplished within us through your Son, Jesus Christ, as we faithfully follow you. We pray, Lord, that that would be the pattern of our life, that we would demonstrate these things as the fruit of genuine faith, as we trust in your Son, as we seek to make you the top priority in our lives. We pray, Lord, that we would rest in the fact that that you've got our good in your mind, that you're working things together for our good and for your glory, that we could trust on you and wait on you in the midst of what we're dealing with, that your peace is available to us and we are not alone. Again, Lord, thank you for giving us these snapshots from the lives of others that we could read about in your word. And obviously, this was a very difficult season for David to go through, but you were the one who sustained him in the midst of it. Lord, it's also special to just kind of look at the the examples of people that you surrounded him with who also were very intentional to help lift him up. And Father, we're grateful for those people in our lives as well who, who have hearts that have been moved by your spirit who surround us and encourage us in the midst of our low seasons. We're just grateful for it all, Lord. Thank you so much for what you're orchestrating in our life. Thank you for the seasons that stretch our faith and teach us that the wisest thing we can do is just stop fighting and and trust in you. Again, Lord, thank you for your presence with us today. And in the midst of whatever we face right now or whatever may come someday in the future, we pray that we would trust you in the midst of it and that we would give you the praise even before the situations we endure resolve completely. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for all of these things. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.